morning, Chillicothe Bible Church. How are you all? We are um, going to be wrapping up today in our study through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we started 1st of January, and now it's the end of August, and uh, it's only been a short eight months uh, to get to this point, right? Uh, I, I had it suggested to me that uh, we might shoot off fireworks at the end of this uh, sermon. Uh, we, we're not going to do that, um, but w- I hope you've enjoyed uh, this sermon series as much as I have enjoyed giving it. Uh, if not, uh, just you just have to endure one more, and uh, then we'll be on to something else. But uh, but I hope that uh, you know. I hope that. In addition to having learned some things together as we have studied through this book, that you have also encountered and met the living Jesus, because the Jesus that we see in Mark is not dead. He is alive, and we're going to see that today as we look at the resurrection. Um, Last week was kind of a heavy message uh, as we talk about the crucifixion. It was heavy for me. I think it was heavy for uh, many of you also, but this week we get to celebrate uh, instead of mourn, and so that's a, that's a, great, that's a great transition to make. Um, you may not know it, but there have been around two dozen major claimants uh, to being the Jewish Messiah, and if you've studied the book of Acts and you remember uh, Gamaliel's speech to the Sanhedrin, he mentions two of them. Uh, a man named Thutis, uh, also another man named Judas. Um, in Acts chapter 5, if you want to read, read a little mention of them. Uh, if you're a student of ancient history, you, you might also know about a, na- a man named, who was born Simon Bar-Kosiba, uh, who was th- then later renamed by a rabbi of his time, Sar- Simon Bar-Kokba, uh, Simon the son of the star. And then after his uh, revolution against the Romans failed, he is now known to Jewish history as Simon bar the son of the lie instead of the son of the star, <laughs> okay? Uh, there have been about 25 of these guys, and whether you've heard of these men or whether you haven't, um, really they don't matter. No one today claims to be a follower of Simon bar as the Messiah. Nobody wants to be a follower of Thutis, a follower of Judas, a follower uh, of you know, Solomon Molko or one of these other guys down through history who have claimed to be the Messiah. Why? Well, for the simple reason that just like Jesus, all of these men were eventually captured and killed by the ruling authorities of their day. And when you are trying to lead a revolutionary movement and, and claim yourself as the Messiah, it's, there's a real simple corollary that goes along with that, is that you can't get killed because a dead leader is not much of a leader. Amen? Your leadership abilities might be excellent right up to that point, but once you stop breathing, your leadership abilities pretty well cease. And so you might build a shrine to this man that you thought was great. Uh, You might make pilgrimages to his tomb, but generally speaking, within a generation or two, all followership of a dead Messiah ceases 
pretty much within the lifetime of his original followers, if he has any that survived the revolt. Uh, probably the most successful was Simon Bar Kokhba. He actually did lead a revolt against the Romans in, uh, in, in the 130s AD. He was actually successful in setting up a Jewish state independent of Rome for a couple of years. And a lot of people thought, this guy, not Jesus, but that guy, is the Messiah. But if you look at the historical record over time, what you see is that billions of people pick one man and identify him. Out of all these other 25 people, they identify with one man as the Messiah. Why? Because that one man out of all of these guys was able to back up his claim to be the Messiah by being killed, but yet rising from the dead. Because while it's true that a dead leader is not much of a leader, a leader who rises from the dead continues to have influence, right? If a guy claims to be the Messiah, don't believe it. But if a guy claims to be the Messiah, gets crucified, and then rises again from the dead, you've got to take note. Because there are some interesting features about this guy that separate him from all the other pretenders to be the Messiah, right? He not only could raise other people from the dead and did, he could raise himself from the dead. Now that is a, Houdini couldn't do that one, okay? There was no, you've got an unusual level of power if you can raise yourself from the dead. And in fact, predict it. In fact, Everybody who is sitting in this room is in some sense invested in the idea that Jesus is the Messiah. Why? Because he alone was raised from the dead. Now, we're going to look at Mark's account of the resurrection, chapter 16. We're going to look at the whole chapter, and uh, beginning in verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go to, Jesus, to anoint Jesus' body very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise. They were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But, they looked up, but when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. It's Sunday morning. As we look in terms of our of our study this this is sunday morning here but it's also sunday morning in here jesus is dead judas is dead peter is off somewhere licking his wounds and hanging his head in shame because he has denied his lord not once but three times even though he was bold and said even if i have to die with you 
I'll never deny you. When it really counted, he fell to temptation and denied right along with the rest. Who knows where, where the other disciples are, but they're underground also. They're waiting and they're hoping that the next knock at the door is not a band of soldiers come to take them off to do to them what was just done to Jesus. Fear and sadness are the dominant mood of the day among Jesus' disciples. And yet a few of the women who for whatever reason uh, have more backbone than all of the men decide whatever it costs, I'm going to go and honor Jesus as best I can. And so they, they get some ointment and some anointing oil and Embalming was was not a Jewish practice. What you did was you would, within the tomb, you had a bench, and you would let the body decompose there. And then when it had finally decomposed to just the bones, you would gather up the bones and put them in a box called an ossuary, a bone box. And then you'd put them on a shelf next to the other uh, members of your family. You would have a family tomb. And... And so what they're doing is it, it serves a dual function. Number one, it um, is a way of providing honor to the dead person to anoint their body with these spices. But the other reason, quite honestly, is to keep, to keep the smell down. And they're expecting, in other words, Jesus' body to already be starting to rot when they get there. They're not expecting a triumphant exit from the grave. They're expecting to go see a dead and decaying man. And while they're on their way, they're wondering to and talking amongst themselves, how are we going to get the stone moved? We're just three women. How are we going to move that big rock that's in front of the tomb? And when they get there, they're, they're shocked because the stone is already gone away from the entrance to the tomb. And so, quite naturally, they're curious and they go in. And when they go in, they see a man seated in a white robe sitting on one end of this little bench where the body should be. And we're meant to understand, by the way, that this man in a white robe is not simply a man. He's an angel. And he says to them what angels always say. Have you noticed this? As you read through, the, through your Bible, whenever someone sees an angel, the first thing the angel says is, don't be afraid. <laughs> I don't know what an angel looks like, but apparently this is something that they need to tell you, <laughs> okay? Because when you see one, it is not as if, you know, I walk up to you in the hallway and tell you, don't be afraid, okay? This is a powerful, I mean, no, who's ever been intimidated by me? Not too many people. It's a very short list, all right? But when you meet an angel, apparently the natural 
response is to quake in your boots. And so the angels always say to someone when they see them for the first time, don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed. And then he says, you're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene. In other words, I know why you're here. You're looking for the guy who was crucified on Friday. But he's not here. He has risen. See the place where they laid him. In other words, look here. See? The grave clothes are still there, but he's not. He's gone. Go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. In other words, he repeated this to you several times, and you should know that he won't be here. But when Jesus told them that he was going to rise from the dead, they didn't believe him. And would you? I mean, that's a perfectly logical response normally. Hey, don't worry. When I die, I'm going to raise from the dead. Okay. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? Most people, if, you, if you, they tell you that, you, your natural normal response would be not to believe that what they had said was true. And yet, in Jesus' case, it is. Being raised from the dead is a fairly unique phenomenon in the Scriptures. It does happen. It happens once with Elijah while he's alive. Okay, He's able to raise this widow's little boy from the dead. It happens twice with Elisha, once while he's alive, and then later after he's dead, God promised to give Elisha a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And so he got to raise two people, one while he was alive and, and once after he was dead. Uh, and that's a pretty interesting story because there, uh, there's a, a group of people who are burying a guy, and they happen to uncover the bones of, of Elisha the prophet, and they throw the dead guy in there. And he comes back to life again. Now, that would be a cool funeral. I'd like to preach that one. <laughs> that would be a good one. All right. Uh, he comes back to life again. Jesus raised several people from the dead while he was alive, including Lazarus there in, a, in the last uh, few days of his life and ministry on earth. Uh, but none of the prophets had ever themselves been raised from the dead. And so the angel reminds them to look at the evidence. Look, the tomb is empty. The grave clothes are still here. And even better, you're going to see him yourself with your own eyes. In other words... The resurrection is not, an, is not an event they're being asked to, te- to just simply take on faith. He's saying, look at the evidence. See where he was. He's not there. You're going to see him face to face. Is that evidence? Yes. This is not a leap in the dark kind of a thing. You're going to see him face to face. And when you see him, you will realize that the body's not gone because it just disappeared or that someone came in and stole it, you're going to see Jesus face to face and know that he is alive. 
uh, against all the odds, against all likelihood, Jesus has beaten both the plotters and the plot against him, and he has even beaten death itself. And the women are initially too terrified and confused to say anything. I mean, what would you say? Hey, uh, I mean, just imagine having this conversation. You, you go back to the other disciples, and you say, yeah, um, we, went, we went down to the, um, to the tomb, and instead of Jesus, we saw an angel who told us that Jesus had raised from, been raised from the dead under his own power. Now, under normal circumstances, if somebody came back telling you that, and keep in mind that culturally, women, women's witness in court was not normally even counted at this time in this culture. In other words, a woman did not count as a valid witness in, in a trial in court. And yet it's women who see, who are the first ones to witness the resurrection. One of the reasons I happen to think the scriptures are true on this point is precisely that anti-cultural element to the record. And yet they go there to go back and tell the disciples, oh, Jesus is raised from the dead. They're going to think, you all need your bulls tightened. No, really, he did raise from the dead. The angel was there and told us, now you, you need to lay off the wine. I mean, really, we all saw the man die. And so they're terrified and confused. Perfectly natural reaction, in other words. And they're afraid to tell anybody because, what would you think? This person is insane. And so Jesus himself is going to provide the evidence, not just to these ladies, but over and over again to his followers. Let's look at the story. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterwards, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. Now, uh, this little passage is Mark's condensation of a much longer series of post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Uh, altogether, the scripture records, if you compare the different gospels, and I can, if you want at some point and you're really interested in this, I can give you the list of all of the events that occurred after Jesus' resurrection and what order they happened in. Um, I won't do that here in the sermon, but 
Um, but altogether, the scripture records about 10 different appearances to different groups of disciples of different sizes, and including one to over 500 people at one time. And all of these took place in the 40-day period between Jesus' resurrection at the beginning of the uh, Feast of First Fruits, uh, up until about seven days uh, before uh, the Feast of Pentecost, so about four, about a forty-day period in between those two. There's about ten different appearances of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene is the first person to see Jesus, uh, and you can read kind of the parallel account of that in John chapter twenty. And it's that's the place where John describes her going to the tomb, and she's crying, and she can't find her Lord, and she sees this man, and she doesn't recognize him, and she thinks he's the gardener. And he says, sir, where have you taken my Lord? They've taken his, him away, and I don't know where they've put him. And he says to her, Mary. And immediately, she realizes it's the Lord, and she says, Rabboni, my teacher. And Mark also gives us here this condensed account of what Luke gives us in his famous account of the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember that one? Um, Jesus appeared to two of them while they were walking in the country. That's the road to Emmaus account that Luke gives. Um, that is Jesus' fourth post-resurrection appearance. Um, and note that, that Mark tells us here that while these two disciples saw him and believed, and Mary saw him and believed, everybody else, as they're telling them, they don't believe. And then, finally, Jesus appears, it says, to the eleven. Uh, this is probably... Um, uh, this is probably, I believe it's the um, eighth or ninth appearance of Jesus. Um, it's, if it's, it's the eighth if Thomas isn't there, it's the ninth if Thomas is there. Uh, and we're not sure uh, which, which one it is. But in any case, he appears while they're eating and he says he rebuked them for their lack of faith. In other words, guys, there have been all these appearances to all these other people and yet you still refuse to believe that I am risen from the dead. I am alive. I, am, I survived the grave. And he gives them instruction. And this is, this is kind of Mark's uh, version of the Great Commission speech. And you need to be aware that there are differences a lot of times when you get parallel accounts of the Gospels. But what you're getting very often is a condensation of a much longer speech. Okay? And you just need to remember that and that there are different details that are recorded between one account of the same speech and another account. Because remember, Jesus a lot of times taught for hours but it doesn't take hours to read Matthew, right? So how is it that he taught for hours? Well, you're just getting a little snippet in each case. And some 
gospel writers record, highlight different aspects of a longer speech, okay? Uh, so don't think that, well, my read Matthew, and this, is, this has a little bit different details. Well, that's true, but it was a longer speech, okay? Um, back to the text here. Um, these verses, verse 15 to 18, are, are Mark's version of the Great Commission. Uh, Jesus gives the assignment to preach the gospel and to baptize people in his name, just like he does in Matthew. But he also describes the things that are going to be done by his followers that are going to give certification to the truth that they are speaking. Uh, whenever, uh, whenever a prophet was sent out by God, they were given signs which authenticated what they said. You know, so when Moses went to Pharaoh, you remember the God gave him certain signs. He said, take your hand, stick it inside your coat. When you pull it out, you'll have leprosy on your hand. You stick it back in and pull it out, your hand will be healed. Take your staff and put it on the ground, and it will become a, a snake. And it ate up all of the magicians of Pharaoh's snakes, right? It authenticated that Moses was God's representative. Uh, in the same way, when Elijah and Elisha and the other prophets came, they, they had the ability, either through things that they predicted, which were near-term fulfillment that came true, or through things that they did physically as demonstrations of God's power, which authenticated that they spoke on behalf of God. And Jesus says that his followers are going to have the same kind of authentication through signs. Uh, as they did. In my name, they will drive out demons. Have you read the book of Acts? Did Jesus' disciples do that? Yes, they did. Uh, did they pick up snakes with their hands? Well, Paul got bit by a snake that came out of a hunk of firewood, and everybody on the island where he was thought, well, he must be a criminal, and he, he escaped from the water, but now the gods have gotten him, right? But they notice that he doesn't swell up and drop over dead, and then they think, well, no, he must be a god. Um, no, that's not it either. He is a follower of Jesus. Uh, we don't have a record of anybody in the Scriptures drinking deadly poison uh, and not being harmed by it, although for all I know that, in fact, did happen, even though we don't have a record of it. Uh, we know that, as an example, the Apostle John, they tried to boil him alive in oil, and he was not burned up, so they exiled him to the Isle of Patmos. Now, that's a good one. I mean, really, that is a good one. Okay, like I say, Houdini couldn't do that. <laughs> okay, here, we're going to get this big pot of burning oil, and we're going to throw you in it. And if you come out of this alive and unharmed, we'll, we'll just send you to prison. Okay, here we go, Lord. I'm either going to die or you're going to show your power. Either way, you'll be glorified. Um, uh, they um, they place their hands on sick people and they get well. Does, did that happen? Yes. Some of these things, by the way, I think continue to happen as a way of authenticating the message of the gospel. Um. I have not personally witnessed these things, but I am aware of them happening. 
uh, as an example, uh, this month, I don't know if you know it or not, but this month is the month of Ramadan in the Muslim world, uh, right up until September 11th. That's the last day, incidentally, of Ramadan. And if you want a, a good thing to do this month while that's happening, uh, pray for the Muslim world. As they're praying during Ramadan, pray for them. Uh, because very often, one of the ways in which God leads people to faith in Jesus Christ is that Ramadan is traditionally known within the, the Muslim world as the month for visions. And so many Muslims pray for a vision. And some of the ones that I know that are former Muslims came to Christ because they were praying during Ramadan that God would send them a vision for him, of himself. And what they saw was a man dressed in white wearing a golden belt whose feet burned like fire. You recognize that guy? That's Jesus out of Revelation. Now, I never had a vision, but I know people who have had them. And these things do indeed, at least at times and in some places, characterize followers of Jesus who are giving authentication to the Word of God by the, fact, by the power of God being present in their life, okay? I'm not saying that we should all expect that this is going to happen to us, um, but where that is necessary to authenticate the Scriptures, God sometimes does do that, okay? So just be aware of that. Um, all right, there's more. Verses 19 and 20. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. This is essentially Mark's summary of the book of Acts. These two verses. Jesus was taken into heaven. Um, they received the Holy Spirit, and they went out preaching in Jesus' name. This little group of guys, and ladies too, were filled with the Holy Spirit in a way that totally transformed them. By the way, one of the evidences for the resurrection is the transformed lives of the earliest disciples. When you take the leader of a revolutionary movement and you kill him in a public way, as was done with Jesus... In every other case, that is the end of the movement. Any of you all seen Spartacus? Old movie with Kirk Douglas? Okay. They, they take Spartacus outside the city of Rome and they hang him on a cross along with a bunch of his followers and kill them. That put an end to the slave uprising. And anybody who, was, who could be in any way tangentially or however associated with that, found a way to get out of Dodge if they could. Because that was the end of the movement, right? And it would have been, apart from the resurrection, the end of Jesus' movement too. So how come it wasn't? How come a bunch of scared, uneducated disciples from Galilee can't shut up about Jesus who was crucified because he was raised from the dead. 
even if you talk to somebody who is a who is a non-believer in the resurrection you still have to ask them this question okay so you don't believe in the resurrection what accounts for the disciples And then they've got to go into some kind of weird thing like, well, they had a, the 500 of them had a mass hallucination all at once at the same time. Okay. <laughs> um, and that on top of that, smaller groups of them, nine other times, also had the same hallucination as a group. Well, generally, unless you have a very high fever or are taking LSD, you're not having hallucinations together. Right? And if you are having hallucinations, it's not the same one. And yet Jesus' followers were transformed, and on top of that, certified that they spoke from God with demonstrations of power. Even the Jewish leaders of that time recognized that these men had power that came from God because they couldn't shut them up. And on top of that, they were able to do miracles, which were irrefutable. Everybody saw them do it. And so they thought, well, we'll have to kill these guys and get rid of them. We're at the end of Mark's gospel at this point. Eight months after we started, we're here at the end of the gospel, but not, I hope, at the end of its impact on our lives. Uh, Because I think that we would be mistaken to think that because we have finished going through a book, that God has finished going through it with us as we live it out. Uh, there are just a couple points here of personal application I'd like to, to have us be cha- challenged and transformed by as we come to the end here. Number one, we have a responsibility, just as Mark says here at the end of his gospel, to preach the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I don't mean in a formal sense like I am up here. God does not call every one of us to be a preacher as I am doing. That's not what I mean. What I mean is, is that God does call every one of us to do here, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. That assignment goes out to all of Jesus' followers. It is to go out and to announce, to be a herald of the good news that Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners, that he died on the cross and was raised from the dead. And the raised from the dead part is important. It is vital, in fact, because it means that Jesus is not just a man who died a martyr to a good cause. He is more than that. He is God. A lot of gospel tracts, and this is one of my big frustrations with the, with the tract uh, publishers, a lot of them leave out the resurrection. They walk people through, the, you're a sinner, you're, um, uh, your sins destined you for hell, and oh, by the way, Jesus died for your sins. Yes, that is all true, and that is all good, and it's all important, and you better tell people that. 
But you better also tell them when you share the gospel with them. And notice I did not say if, I said when you share the gospel with them, that Jesus Christ did not stay dead. He was raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead, and his being raised from the dead certifies and proves everything else he had to say. If Jesus was just a good man, he would have stayed dead. If Jesus had preached everything he had preached and yet made his prediction, I'm going to be raised from the dead, and then didn't actually rise, guess what? He, the the Sanhedrin would have been right. He leads the people astray. But Jesus has indeed been risen from the dead. And that makes all of the difference in the world. And we dare not leave it out. Because it is the resurrection of Jesus which proves his message. It is the resurrection of Jesus that gives meaning to his death, which tells us that this is not just the death of a good man, a good moral teacher who said good things, that you should be good, not bad, that you should be nice, not cruel, that you should do these things. Muhammad can tell people that. Buddha told people that. Zoroaster, for that matter, told people that. Jesus is unique. Because he is the only person in all history to survive the grave. The resurrection matters. So when you share the gospel with people, when you have some of those names on the wall over here that are yours, of people that you know and love who, apart from a relationship with Jesus, are going to hell. And because you love them, you go to them and say, Do you know the living Christ? And if they do not know, or here's a, here's a good intro question, has anybody ever taken a Bible and shown you how you could know for sure how, that you were going to go to heaven when you die? And if they say, no, could I do that? Let me take a Bible and show you how you could know for sure. And take them to Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23 and John 3.16 and Ephesians 2.8 and 9. Take them here. Show them Jesus was raised from the dead. And then... In addition to preaching the resurrection, we also have to live the resurrection. The resurrection tells us that it is not simply in this life that we have hope in Christ. Right? You got your Bible, go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Again, I don't do this often. I think this is the second time this year. I've asked you to turn to somewhere other than Mark. So, but if you've got your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, okay? Uh, we do not simply have hope in Christ for this life only. We have hope in Christ for all eternity. Why? Because of the resurrection. Look here. Uh, verse 51. Listen. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep 
but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why does the resurrection matter to me on a practical daily basis? Because Jesus died for my sin, but he was raised to give me new life. New life in eternity, first of all, but also new life now. Look at verses uh, 58 and 59, or I guess it's just 58 there. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's the practical implication. In other words, think of it this way. Jesus died to give you new life, eternal life, in his presence. And his resurrection proves that that is coming for us. Just as it came for him, it will also one day come for us. Therefore, right now, because we have this hope in heaven, live your life in light of the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead and will raise you from the dead. Jesus does not save us to keep us as we are. He saves us so that by the power of the Holy Spirit and the impact of his word in our life, that we might be progressively transformed into the image of the Son and look like, act like, think like Jesus. Paul says, since you know that you're going to have future glory, then... Stand firm in the faith and give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Live out the fact that the resurrection happened and is true. Let's not simply celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and look forward to our own resurrection. Let's live out the new life which Jesus died and was raised to give us. You have to throw off, as Hebrews says, the sin which so easily entangles us. Or as Paul writes in Ephesians, put away, put off malice and gossip, slander and lust and hatred and envy, greed and rage and selfish ambition and things like these. And put on the Holy Spirit's power, transformed resurrection life of the risen Savior who died for you and me. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, 